We'll be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And stretching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him, and saying, Sir, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not qualified for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and, wait, and began to wait on him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for all that you've given us in your word and for this clear revelation you've made of yourself through the person of Jesus Christ. And we want to know you in truth, worship you in spirit and truth. I pray, God, that our hearts would be open to you, that you would speak to us, that we would yield in faith and obedience to you, knowing, God, that you first loved us and that we would love you, God, as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, my intention this morning um, is to actually go a little further past where, we, where I just read. Um, and I still haven't decided, you can be praying for me, I still haven't decided whether to go through all of Matthew or to start jumping around. Um, but I thought it would be important here because we've just finished the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been legislating um, what are basically the, the, is, what is the law for his kingdom. And he is proving himself to, be, to have the authority to legislate. He has already established that because he is without sin. So our students at his hill would know that Matthew can be outlined pretty simply at least the first few chapters in that chapter 1 is his ancestry, chapter 2, his announcement as king, chapter 3, his anointing as king, chapter 4, his moral authority in that he was without sin, and then chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he is legislating out of that moral authority. But now it seems that Matthew feels the need to establish that Jesus has um, authority over all creation. And so chapters 8 and 9 are establishing that through a series of miracles. There are three sets of miracles that Matthew's going to lay out. 
And after each set of miracles, he will have a discipleship teaching that he gives. And the discipleship part is really where I want to focus in on um, because we know that that is the great commission that comes at the end of Matthew. Go therefore into all the nations and make disciples. And so we know that this is really the heart of, of Matthew. It's not so much to talk about miracles or even to talk about the authority of Christ, as important as that is, but it's to move us into being people who are making disciples. And so these discipleship statements here, especially in Matthew 8 and 9, are very significant, and there are others that come up throughout the book. So Jesus has authority over all creation. And in these first three miracles, he's healing leprosy, he's healing a centurion's servant, and he's healing um, Peter's mother-in-law. All three deal with sickness, and Christ has authority over all illness, sickness, and disease. That's just a simple lesson that's coming across here, but it says that Christ is the one who has the authority over these things. I hope that that's not lost on us, especially in the last two years where the world has been, been responding in such panic and fear um, to COVID. And we sometimes think that we are in control of sickness and disease and illness. That is not true. God alone is in control of these things. They are in this world because of sin. But God alone is the one who is in control of sickness and illness and disease as well as death. And so here the first miracle, and this is not the first miracle that Jesus performs. John tells us the first miracle was the turning of water into wine. But in Matthew, he's not interested in the chronology of Christ's life so much. He's presenting a theme. And the theme here is, is basically Jesus is king and Jesus has authority. And we should, should love him and submit to him because um, of who he is. And so after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chooses to the first miracle to highlight, which would have been a, a great miracle for so, showing his authority, is the healing of leprosy. And so as I read, it says, Behold, a leper, verse 2, came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, it's amazing that the leper would, would have this faith. Um, it, there's been no one that has been healed, no Jew has been healed in Israel since Miriam had her leprosy. We know that Moses had leprosy, remember, that he could put it in his hand in his cloak and bring it out, leprosy, put it back in, bring it out, no leprosy, ooh, 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 back and forth like that. And must have been fun for a while. I don't know how many times he did that. I would have done it a lot. Um, <laughs> And so, and then later, Miriam gets leprosy because she um, overstepped her place. And she and, and Aaron both decided that they ought to be in charge and not Moses. And she seemed to be the ringleader of that because God struck her with leprosy. And then Moses prayed for her and the leprosy was removed. After that came the giving of the law. And so... And, and then with the giving of the law, from that time on, there was never another Jew healed of leprosy. Naaman was healed, but he was not a leper. I'm sorry, he was not a Jew. He was a leper. He was not a Jew. He was a Syrian. But no Jew was ever healed. And yet there's this chapter tucked away in Leviticus, an entire chapter that is devoted to the healing of leprosy and what a priest is to do when a former leper shows up and he's had his, lep his leprosy cleansed. And so, because no Jew since the writing of the law 
No Jew had ever been healed. It became an, a messianic expectation that when the Messiah appeared, he would heal leprosy. That would not have been lost on this leper. He has no reason experientially to think that Jesus can heal leprosy because he has not healed leprosy to date. But this leper believes that Jesus is the Messiah and he believes one of the signs of the Messiah is that he will heal leprosy. Good for him. And so the only question is, is he willing? Is he willing? And Jesus answered that readily by saying, I am willing. And stretching out his hand, he touched him. Scandalous. I, commentaries are, are in different places on, on what leprosy was at this time. Some say it was identical to Hansen's disease today. Others would say Hansen's disease is not nearly as bad as the leprosy that we see depicted in the Bible. I tend to think that it was worse than what we're seeing in the Bible because it's, it's depicted as something that would spread, whereas Hansen's disease doesn't, as I understand, always spread. And it often um, was communicable to other people, it would seem. And that doesn't seem necessarily to be the case with Hansen's disease. There's still a lot of questions out about what modern-day leprosy can and can't do. But most would say, from what I understand, that Hansen's disease, modern-day leprosy, is not terminal. But it was in what we're seeing in the Bible. So leprosy is a tremendous picture of really sin. And it became a, a, a symbol or a type of sin in that there was no cure for it. It resulted in you being alienated from all of society, which sin does. It alienates us from others. No cure like sin. Only God can remove our sin. Terminal, the wages of sin is death. Um, it desensitizes you wherever it, the leprosy is on. It kills the nerve endings and you have no uh, perception of pain wherever the leprosy is. It can be communicated to other people like our sin can. So there's just, it's really a perfect picture, ugly picture, but a perfect picture of sin. And it's good that it's ugly because sin is ugly. I think that if you want to know what sin is like, meditate on leprosy. But the big thing that comes about is the hopelessness, the hopelessness. When you got leprosy, your life was over. You were alienated, ostracized, stigmatized. You had to walk around covering your mouth and saying, unclean, unclean, and people would get out of the way. You wonder what was happening in this crowd of people when this leper walked up. I wonder if people would have been throwing rocks at the man if Jesus hadn't been there because that's how lepers were treated. If they got too close to you, you just chunked rocks at them because you didn't want them, what they had, to spread to you. In addition to this, the Old Testament is emphatic that a state of uncleanness or unholiness can be spread to others, but a state of holiness cannot be spread. So for Jesus to touch this man is to willingly, purposely make himself unclean. Nobody would do that. And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. It just 
makes you want to cry thinking about this situation, how emotional, how dramatic it would have been. This man has probably gone years since anyone has touched him, decades. He has had no show of kindness. And when he breaks through the crowd and people were just been falling away like, like rats off a ship when this man walked up, and Jesus doesn't even begin to withdraw. I am willing. And he touches him. Now we know that Jesus in that moment did not become unclean. He did not become unholy. But we do know that when Jesus died for our sin, he did in that moment become unclean and unholy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not a surprise, and I've made mention of this recently already, it's not a surprise when you think about it that a few of the rabbis actually believed that the Messiah would be a leper. Because they understood Isaiah 53 where it says he is stricken of God. That word stricken is usually reserved for leprosy. And they thought he will be a leper when he comes. Well, he didn't have leprosy, but he became what leprosy represents, sin. And by becoming sin, he's going, I am willing not only to touch you, but to become what you are. He did not become a sinner, but he took sin upon himself. He was willing not only to come near, but to actually touch the one who is unclean. This is what he has done for you and me. And then Jesus said, see that you tell no one. How could you not tell anybody? Unbelievable, best day of his life. Go show yourself to the priest and present, and, pre, and, and present the offering that Moses prescribed for a testimony to them. Obviously, this man's going to bear witness. That's not a problem. But Jesus doesn't want him to get so excited that he misses the opportunity to go to the people who need to see this, and that is the priest. Go straight to the priest. Why is this the first miracle in Matthew's account? Because Matthew wants us to, to see who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He has the authority, the power, and the willingness to heal leprosy, to take away sin. We know of only two Pharisees who came to faith in Christ. That's it. John the Baptist refused to even baptize them when they came. He did not baptize a single Pharisee. He despised them. But when it came to the priest, the Scripture tells us that many of the priests believed in Jesus. And I can imagine that it was likely because they saw leprosy healed. And for hundreds of years, over a thousand years, they have been living with the expectation that when the Messiah comes, he will heal leprosy. So it was not a big step for them. When it's undeniable, irrefutable, this man was a leper and he is healed. And only God can do that. This must be the Son of God, the Messiah. Verse 5 is a second healing. 
And he, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him and saying, Sir, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. There are no centurions mentioned in a negative light in the New Testament. Every centurion, isn't it interesting? Every centurion mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned positively. It's not hard to understand. We have in our lives and here at this church quite a few military people. And when you think about just how, how great they are um, and the character, the, the integrity that's there, it's no, not really a surprise that these centurions are consistently represented in a positive light in Scripture. This man loves his servant, hates to see him in pain, and wants him healed and goes to Jesus and asks him to do it. We don't know whether his servant was a Jew or a Gentile. Commentaries are split on it. I kind of like the one that I read that said the evidence is on the side that he would have been Jewish. We don't know. But that would make this all the more impressive if he has a Jewish servant that he loves so much that he is willing to humble himself and go to Jesus and say, would you heal my servant? And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not qualified for you to come under my roof because he's a Gentile. Amazing. That he would, the, the humility of this man, I think, is what stands out. Jesus is going to speak to his faith, but, it's, but I'll make comments about that again. But just the humility of this man that he's regarded as a despised dog by the Jewish people. That would make me mad. I have authority over these people, and they call me a dog? Humble man, I am not qualified for you to come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then his understanding of authority. I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And what he was saying is, I see authority with you, and that can only mean you are under authority, and that may, being the authority of God. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. What a rebuke to Israel. Why was this man's faith so great? I wonder if it wasn't because his humility was so deep. This is a profoundly humble man. The Bible tells us that with humility comes wisdom. Andrew Murray, not the Bible, but Andrew Murray would say, every virtue is derived from humility. Faith is a virtue. Love is a virtue. Wisdom is a virtue. Every virtue comes out of humility. This was a humble man. Great faith because of great humility. It is the origin as well, humility is, of authority. Because it's only through obedience that a person has authority. An obedient man is a man living under authority and therefore is granted 
authority. Obedience, the origin of authority is coming under authority, and authority is derived from obedience. I look forward to meeting this man in heaven, a humble man living in difficult circumstances who lived under authority in the exercise of his authority and could recognize it in others, full of faith, wisdom, and love, love for his servant, all of it coming from springing out of humility. Jesus said that in his kingdom, there's going to be a lot of people that the Jewish people would not expect there, Gentiles. And there's going to be a lot of Jews that ought to be there that won't be there, presumably because of their lack of faith. They did not place their faith in Christ. The third miracle is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Now, I'm very tempted to give a mother-in-law joke here, but I don't want to offend. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know where do I go with that. Um, I was teaching this past week by Zoom in one of the torchbearer centers, and I gave a blonde joke. I always give a blonde joke when I'm teaching First Kings. I make a big point about how Bathsheba was probably blonde. And it's funny. And we laugh. And some took offense. And I was asked to stop telling blonde jokes. <laughs> you know why blondes smile during lightning storms? Because they think their pictures are being taken. <laughs> All right, that's it. I'm not going to tell you. I'm sorry if I offended you. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. She doesn't listen to my sermons, to my knowledge, so I can tell mother-in-law. No, I won't tell any mother-in-law jokes. The student that was upset with me being from Canada, I thought, well, maybe I should just tell some Mennonite jokes. <laughs> you know. I didn't do that. There are three accounts to the mother-in-law being ill, and um, in the other two, in Mark and Luke, um, it is Peter and his disciples who take the initiative to point out to Jesus that the mother-in-law is in the back room ill. These would not have been large homes, and, um, and it would have become very obvious, you know, immediately that something was wrong. Um, but, but here, um, Jesus goes to her, touches her, and the fever leaves her. But not only that, but she's immediately restored to full strength. And now she can start waiting on him. And that's the point of the waiting on him. It, it's, it's, she didn't, he didn't heal her for that purpose, but the point is just simply that she has immediate strength which is not normally what you would see after a period of prolonged illness. And then they started bringing to him um, in the evening. So some think that this would have been um, toward the end of, of the Sabbath day. And so people are now flooding in because they didn't want to be in violation of the Sabbath. Um, and he's healing the demon-possessed and casting out um, the spirits and, and healing everyone who came to him. And then the quote from Isaiah, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. 
not to get hung up on this, and I don't want to spend much time on it this morning, um, but you know, we all know that there is a, a significant portion of Christianity that believes that all sickness is to be healed now. And sometimes that belief is predicated on, Ma- on Isaiah 53, and you will hear people say that healing is in the atonement. Amen. There's no question about that. Healing is in the atonement. And there's no question that Jesus came to take away our infirmities and all of our diseases. But the focus on Isaiah 53, the focus there is on our sin, our iniquities. And if you read the passage, it's very clear. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each, he has taken our iniquity upon himself. And that's clearly the focus of the passage. It's our iniquity that is the cause of our infirmities and diseases. And he didn't just come to heal these things. He came to take away our sin, which results in these things. And we need to put the priority where Scripture puts it, which is not on the healing. It is on salvation, the forgiveness of our sin, the removal of our sin. It is true, nonetheless, that healing is in the atonement. But it's not true that everything is going to be healed in this lifetime. That's just simply not true. Study Romans 8 would be a great place to go to where we read that all of creation is under the curse waiting for the redemption of the sons of God, being us, the children of God. And then that we ourselves groan and the Holy Spirit himself groans and we see that throughout that passage we are living in a time where there is a not yet to our faith, that we have not yet come to that day of redemption where all of creation will be out from under the curse and there will be no no longer any sickness of any kind. We look forward to that. We're not there yet, and we get sick. And there are many people throughout the New Testament that we see are sick, including Paul. What we do see, and just a quick standing back, looking at the forest and not being um, lost in the trees here, is that Jesus has authority over every kind of sickness. But not only does he have the power, he has the willingness. He is a compassionate God. It's pretty incredible to think about. This is not the God of other religions. Study them. The God of the other religions is indifferent. He is capricious. He is uncaring, unmoved. And that is why those who worship those gods have to go to extraordinary lengths to win his favor because he is not favorably disposed toward his people. He is angry toward his people. He has to be won over. He has to, um, we have to go through tremendous sacrifice. In the Old Testament, people were even sacrificing their children alive in the name of trying to get the favor of these gods. Many religions today believe that he is so indifferent to us that whatever happens, you might as well just say, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, que sera. As Doris Day used to sing. Many of you don't know who that was. Whereas the Muslims would say, as Allah wills. Sad. Really, really sad. Where our God loves us, sent his son into this world to die for us, is more than willing to come near and to remove our sin and to bring us into relationship with himself simply through faith in Jesus Christ, not through sacrifice on our part. There is nothing we need to do to win him over. 
He is love, and He loves everyone in this world and gave His Son for them. He's an amazing God, both powerful, all-powerful, and compassionate. The only question is, how will we relate to Him? And that's this discipleship question that comes up. The one who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of man and becoming obedient even to the point of death. He has given himself without reservation to you and me. This all-powerful God. How will we respond to him? Well, that's verses 18 to 22 the first of several discipleship statements that are made here in these chapters. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. You can just hear the, the, the emotion and, and the excitement, and, and, and it seems like dedication. Wherever you go, Jesus, I'll go. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. So people here are just volunteering to follow Christ. I never had to go see an army recruiter. I didn't, I didn't sign up, and I didn't get drafted, and so um, that's not been part of my experience. But I've heard so many stories, as you have, of young men and women who've gone down to the recruiter, and the recruiter has just promised them everything. And then they find out it's not true. I heard of one guy that um, he showed up at basic training um, with golf clubs and water skis. And they just about laughed him out of the army. And they, and, and they what's the deal? And, well, the, um, he was going to be on the, on, the, on the beach, and there were golf clubs nearby. And, and, he, was, and he was told, the recruiters, he, he said, is there, is there skiing or is there golf? And they go, oh, yeah, those things are out there. Didn't necessarily promise him he'd be able to do those things, but he said, oh, yeah, those things are out there. Big mistake. You remember when Top Gun came out a number of years ago, and it was the biggest recruitment tool the Air Force ever had, or the Navy as well. And, um, and it was because it was about the Navy, and, and they, the recruiters were right there at the movie theater signing people up on the spot because they're going to be top gun. A few weeks later, they're peeling potatoes in the bottom of a battleship. <laughs> they lied. Well, Jesus is not interested in overselling anything. He's not interested in selling anything. And so when these people start volunteering to come to him, he just says, okay, let me tell you what it's going to be like. My friend that was a missionary in Mongolia for 20 years, he spoke with some missionary candidates one time after he'd been there for a number of years. And they said, be honest with us. Tell us what it's like on the mission field. And he goes, I can't be honest with you. you would, none of you would continue in your candidacy. You would all drop out. So for me to be honest with you, we would not be holding class in an air-conditioned building. For me to be honest with you, we would go outside at night, turn on all the sprinklers, sit in the grass while we're getting shot down with the sprinklers, and, and then, you, you know, and he just, he just tries to make this, this, this terrible scenario, and he says, and that wouldn't even be close to what it's going to be like. Because <laughs> he had it tough in Mongolia. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's just saying, I'm going to tell you what it's like. 
So verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And presumably, that man said, Not me. I don't think I want that. When I applied to work at the gravel pit down here in San Antonio, I didn't know what to sign up for, um, and so I just applied to be a laborer. And, um, and the personnel director looked at my application, came out and talked to me, interviewed me for a bit, and then, and then she says, you don't want to be a laborer. And I said, well, why not? And she says, all laborers do is stand inside of boxcars, train boxcars, and shovel gravel out by hand all day. And I looked at her and said, you know, you're right. <laughs> I really don't want to be a laborer. What do I want to do? What do I want to be? And she said, you want to be an assistant asphalt plant operator trainee. And I'm going, okay, sounds good to me. And I appreciate that they were honest with me of what I was facing. Now, here's something I've, I just went through this passage not long ago with the students at His Hill. And, um, and I'm not trying to be novel or, or creative or anything here, but in, I was studying this passage again. And I came across some remarks that I had never thought of, and I really deeply appreciated them. I think this writer is probably onto something. I've always taken this as, as Jesus is saying, um, I have no idea where I'm going to be tonight. That was probably true. But there's something more going on here. Because see, foxes have holes. Foxes know where they're going to be at night. They have a hole they go to. They go to the same hole every night. Actually, they come out of their holes at night to go hunting. But fox dens, we have a number of fox dens on the property at His Hill. They're always there. And birds have nests. So a bird with a nest goes back to the same nest every night. So they have a fixed place. So it's not just that Jesus is saying, I don't have a fixed place. He is saying that. But this fixed place is what we would call home. Now remember, Peter still has a home because they went to Peter's home and healed his mother-in-law. Right? That's the last miracle here. And then the very next statement, my disciples don't have homes. But Peter did have a home. So it seems that what Jesus is saying is, my disciples have to be willing to leave their homes. And so home speaks of family. What's home? Family's home. The little ones are at home. And Peter clearly was a man who was willing to leave home. He spoke to that later. Lord, we've left homes and we've left businesses. We've left these things. So even though he had it that he could go back to, if he, but in his mind and his heart, home was no longer his anchor. Jesus was his anchor. It seems that Jesus is speaking here, as we're going to see in all three of these discipleship statements, about the priority of Jesus over family. That's the message here. Home is where the family is. We've all heard that, especially in the Hallmark movies, right? Home is where the family is. And Jesus is saying, Give up your family. Remember, later on, he's going to say, 
people say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are here. And he goes, really? Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? I'll tell you who my mother and brothers and sisters are. Those who do the will of God. Pretty radical stuff. Second potential disciple. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. I've heard, for, and, and still commentaries, I, I read them and they back it up. It, 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 the, there, was a, there was and apparently is a Middle Eastern idiom that says, let me, still, t- still true today apparently, let me first bury my father. And what it means is, my father's not dead. Let me wait until he dies. Presumably because that son doesn't want to leave, lose the inheritance. And if he left too soon, he could get cut out of the will. So some have called this the barrier of insecurity. You don't have the security of finances. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be prepared to lose the security of finances to follow me. You have to be prepared to lose the certainty of where you're going to spend the night, some would say, for the first one. But here's a thought. What if Jesus was not, what if this man was not talking about my father dying 10 years from now? What if he actually meant my father has died? Let me first bury him. Well, now that seems hard. Who would not make an exception for someone whose dad has died? We let people miss work. We let them miss class. We even let people out of prison when they've had a parent die so that they can go to the funeral. Could Jesus be saying, I'm more important than the funeral? What does he say here? Let the dead bury their own dead. That's a harsh statement. But it sounds as though he's saying the dead here would be let the spiritually dead take care of things that don't require spirituality. I'm looking for your heart. I'm wanting to have you engaged in my work, which is something that you can't do unless you're in a relationship with me. Bearing people doesn't require a relationship with me. I'm looking for more than what you're willing to give. Maybe that's what he's after. There is a third disciple or potential disciple, volunteer that comes. It's not reflected here in Matthew, but if you go over to Luke chapter 9, it's the parallel passage, and we have volunteer number 3. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57 to 62. And this is in verse 61, the third volunteer. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those who are at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Harsh statements. No, you can't go home and say goodbye. Now, what do all three of these things have in common? Family. I have no, I have no home. The foxes, the birds, they have home. I don't. Are you willing to give up home, family? 
Let me bury my father. The dead can bury their own. Are you willing to put me ahead of your father? Let me just go home and say goodbye. No, you can't look in two directions at the same time. You've got to be single-minded, fixed on me. Am I overstating this? Look at Matthew chapter 10. It's one of those discipleship passages that Matthew feels very important to have in his gospel. Matthew chapter 10. If I can find it, beginning in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I wonder if Jesus is saying to these three sincere people who loved their families, can I, do I have to say no to my family? You're telling me I have to put Jesus ahead of even my father's burial? Yes. You're telling me I can't even go home and say goodbye? Yes. This is pretty radical stuff. It's one guy that I was reading. I tell you, I was, I was challenged. And he said, because our society is turning so far away from the family, and it is, redefining marriage, making divorce and remarriage easy and prevalent, attacking the family on every side. And perhaps the family has never been under greater attack than what it is today. And we understand that the family is the basic building block of all of society. Society cannot endure without strong nuclear families. That is a fact. This writer was saying, knowing that, could it be true today that we as Christians have swung too far to the other side? And in our zeal to preserve the family, we are making an idol out of family. And we are putting family ahead of Jesus. We would not think that Jesus would ever tell us to choose between family and him. After all, it's Jesus who created the family. Wouldn't he? Anything that has a greater place in our heart than Jesus is an idol. Anything. Including good things like family. This writer pointed out that today we can excuse overwork, overacquiring, overindulging, all in the name of family. Why are you working such long hours? 
because of my family. Why are you acquiring so much stuff? Because of my family. Why are you spending such exorbitant amounts of money for my family so that we can have quality times together? And this author asked the question, are family interests really just a disguise for our own self-interest? The problem here is not the family, but it's wrong priorities. It's putting family ahead of Christ. We demonstrate love for Christ, quoting another author. We demonstrate love for Christ in our love for our family and others. But love for family and others should not exceed our love for Christ. How do you prove your love for Jesus? You love one another. You love your family. But the love of one another and the love of family should not take priority over the love of Christ. The family is a means by which we serve God. God is the end. We've reversed it. And we make God the means to have the family that we want to have. Rather than the family as a means for worshiping God and serving God. Think about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. In this context, that family can take priority over God. It makes sense that God would say to Abraham, sacrifice your son. But God wouldn't do that today. Not literally. But yes, in terms of our devotion, our commitment to Him, Nothing should take the place of Jesus. Nothing. Not wife, not children, not parents, nothing. Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword, and to divide between these different family relationships. I look out over our congregation and I am amazed and impressed and blessed by the quality of people that are in this church. Just sitting in the back of the adult Sunday school room and looking at all the back of your heads. And um, what wonderful people. I'm deeply thankful for each one of you. But it's true. We do not all have kids that are walking with the Lord. There are people in this church that are extraordinary people, godly people, who raise their children better than I raise mine. And those kids are not walking with Jesus. Mine are at this point in time. That does not make me a better man. That doesn't mean I did a better job and somebody whose kids aren't walking with Jesus. I look through the kings of the Old Testament, and I see how many good kings produced rotten children, and how many rotten kings that produced good children. It shouldn't be lost on us. 
Ahaz was a wicked king, and he produced Hezekiah. And Hezekiah produced Manasseh. Ammon was a wicked king, and he produced Josiah. And Josiah produced a Jehoaz and a Jehoiakim, wicked kings. How does that happen from one generation to the next? Wicked, good, wicked, good. Maybe God wants, especially those of us who have children walking with the Lord, to be very careful not to make an idol out of family. And to look around and humble ourselves to recognize there are people better than we whose children are not walking with the Lord. Don't make family an idol. There can be the idolatry of work, of ministry, of health, of safety, of marriage, family. When family is elevated above Jesus, one writer said this happens, two things. Life without family or life without your children walking with the Lord becomes meaningless and insignificant. Everything becomes defined by what you worship. And if our worship, our heart is with family, and that's the most important thing, then life can become meaningless and insignificant when family's not working as it's supposed to work. Single people can rush into marriage when it's not God's will or God's timing because of the idolatry of marriage. What is an idol? It's what we trust in. It is what we must have to be happy and content. It is what ruins us when it is taken from us. It is where we find peace and fulfillment. See, when Jesus has that first place in our hearts, the central place in our hearts, when we trust in Him, even when our children are not walking with Jesus, and life hurts, you can still know the joy of the Lord and contentment because you're not worshiping marriage and family. When children die or are taken from us, when a marriage ends in divorce and there's nothing you can do to preserve your marriage, when life seems to have fallen apart, we don't fall apart. Because life isn't marriage. Life isn't children. Life is Jesus Christ. When the world is falling apart because of a disease, and Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. When Jesus says, I have overcome the world, we can be at peace. Because our we are not worshiping good health. We are not worshiping safety. We worship God. Am I willing to let go 
what is dearest to me. If Jesus says, let it go. I know a man, godly man, and he had one, only two children. Both of them struggled at different times. One of them was wayward uh, most of his life. I believe that even to the time that this man died, that one child was just constantly in rebellion. Tremendous grief to him and his, and his wife. But I heard him say one time, in a little bit of jest, not totally, he says, you know, when, when you buy something that's defective, what do you do? You take it back to the store and give it back. And he says, and when you've got kids that are defective, just give them back to God. And that's what he did with his kids. What else can you do? You say, Lord Jesus, here you go. Here are my children. Patsy and I have been at his hill a long time, and there have been times when it's been very, very difficult. And I went to his hill, not being committed to his hill, but committed to Jesus. And this just happened to be where Christ placed us, and people asked us forever, how long are you going to be at his hill? How long are you going to be at his hill? I don't know. My commitment is not to his hill. It's to the Lord. And you can say that, and it sounds good, but the longer you live somewhere, the, the more you put down roots. All four of our children born there. It's the only thing they've ever known. And so you can say, I'm willing to go, and yet it'd be a very hard decision to make. And there was a time when things were especially hard, and I was just begging Jesus to get me out of his hill. But my wife didn't want to go, and the kids didn't want to go, and nobody was offering me anything. <laughs> and I look back and I wondered, even at that time, I would talk to Patsy about it, we'd pray about it, I go, what is going on here? Why is God allowing it to be so difficult? And I think it's because we had put down roots. That was part of the reason. And he was just shaking the tree trunk, loosening up everything. So that we could say, God, I'm willing. If you want us to move, I am willing. I think that's all God wanted, was that our commitment not be to a place, but it be to Him. And He will continually do that. If your marriages are being shaken, it's not so that you would run from marriage. It's not so that you would divorce. It might simply be because he wants you to get your heart back on Jesus. I don't know how to say it any more plainly. Trials and difficulties happen so that we could be reoriented back to Christ as the first thing in our life, as the one who occupies central place in our lives. And the difficulties are not there so that we would run and try and find other options. But simply that God would use those things to reorient us that our North Star would again be Jesus Christ. Not marriage, not children, not work, not health, not safety, but Jesus Christ. And we've had a lot of shaking in the last two years in this country. Haven't we? And I'm convinced Jesus is just after one thing that his people would embrace him first and above all else, that we could truly say 
Christ is the all in all for me. Amen? I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your grace and mercy to us, for your goodness, for being the kind of God who came near, who gave yourself without reservation to each of us. And I pray, O oh God, that we would be a people who respond in like kind to you, without reservation, without hesitation, that we would offer ourselves to you as fully as you've offered yourself to us, and that we would present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice and allow you to work in us of your good pleasure, whatever that cost would be. Where we have placed things ahead of you, where there are idols that have crept up in our hearts deceitfully where we aren't even aware of them, expose them, I pray, O oh God, by your word and your spirit, that Jesus might again have first place, the place that he is worthy of in each of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.